1: When you have a name like Marie in the middle, you think it's probably a she, but it wasn't. It was a he. You know him better as the French deist and philosopher Voltaire. He lived from near the end of the 17th century to near the end of the 18th century, and he was the most outspoken critic in France of Christianity and the Bible. Now, to be fair, a lot of his opposition was to the state church and the collusion between the king and the crown, and the church and its leaders that oppressed the people. Nevertheless, he was adamantly, as a deist, opposed to revealed Christianity and the Word of God. Louis XV banned him from Paris in 1754, and he moved to Geneva, Switzerland, which is an interesting place to live if you're banned as, a, as an opponent to Christianity, since you know that that is one of the centers of the Reformed tradition. So he lasted there only six years, and then he was banned by the council from Geneva, and he moved then to Ferney, France. About six years afterward, he said this. He wrote this. The Bible. That is what fools have written, what imbeciles commend, what rogues teach, and young children are made to learn by heart. We are living in the twilight of Christianity the sunset of Christianity. And three years later, he wrote Frederick the Great, the King of Prussia, these words. I don't think that Frederick bought into what he was saying, but he wrote these words to him. My one regret in dying is that I cannot aid you in this noble enterprise of extirpating, that is eradicating, the world of this infamous superstition, that is Christianity. Now, you cannot find the following words written in any of his works, but he is reputed to have said it, and it is in the spirit of what he was about in his opposition to Christianity. Near the end of his life in 1778, supposedly he said, within 100 years of my death, no one will be reading the Bible anymore. It will be irrelevant. It will be consigned to being an artifact, a mere museum piece. So what happened in the next hundred years? These accounts are accurate. These are true. Just 16 years after his death, Bibles were being printed on the very same printing press that he had used to print his works in Ferney, France. And 42 years later, the Evangelical Society there in Geneva was storing Bibles in the home that he had formerly lived in. So much for his prediction. You know, we've gone through about 12 weeks of apology. That is, giving a reasoned defense when someone asks us to give evidence for the hope that is within us. Let me review those very quickly because all of these, time and time again, every week I have said, we believe these things for many reasons, but the main reason is because the Lord has revealed these things to us in his word. And when there are people that are critics of his word, then it, I think, is incumbent upon us if we're going to defend these truths that we must look at His Word, which we're doing today. What are those points? Well, number one, God exists in the very first week. Not only does God exist, but He loves you and He gave His only begotten Son so that if you believe in Him, you will not perish but have everlasting life. The Secondly, God is not, as other theists believe, simply one beingness, one person, he is one beingness, but he is three persons in that one beingness, in his divinity, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And, of course, that is counterintuitive. It is not rational according to the way humans think. Number three, truth exists, and it is certain. And that truth is embodied in his Son, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And when God proclaims his truth, it is not subject to our opinion it is certain, and it is absolute. In a world of relativism that says my truth is truth, the Bible refutes that. Number four, there's only one right view, and this sounds rather arrogant. It's not. It's merciful. To proclaim this truth that there is only one right worldview according to the Bible, and it is theistic God is supernatural being. He is the one and only God. He is eternal. He is sovereign. He is creator, and he is sustainer. He is the one that watched over every living soul on the face of this globe as they slept last night, not just those who believe. Number five, God created from nothing. Matter is not all that matters. Matter has not always existed. He brought it into existence, and only God is supernatural, and He is sovereign over all that creation. Number six, God's being and His ways are mysterious. We cannot understand them apart from divine revelation, and then it is as it is uh, illuminated by His Holy Spirit. You see, we'll never fully understand God's ways. His ways transcend human reason and skepticism, and even when we see Him in heaven, It does not mean we will know everything because He is far beyond our comprehension. His ways are mysterious. Number seven, God performs miracles. He does. He breaks into nature and He does miracles. He has, He does, and He will. And the greatest of those miracles since creation have been the incarnation of Christ and His resurrection and glorification. Number eight, God does not cause evil and suffering. No, He gives us free will. The... Evil and suffering around us is a result of a fallen creation and our exercising that free will that God gave us. But we do know this, that God does suffer with us, and he will someday defeat evil and suffering. Number nine, God became human. God the Son became human in the incarnation, the Son of God through the virgin birth then as Jesus Christ, who was and is and forever will be fully human and fully divine. Number ten, Jesus Christ. Therefore, is the only true way. Only he fully reveals the truth, and only he completely fulfills God's will. And only through him can we come to the Father and be saved. Next to last, number 11. Christ's resurrection indeed did really happen, and it is the basis for our eternal life and our hope in the future. And finally, as we said last week, heaven exists, and also so does hell. We are living souls. We don't just have a soul. We are living souls. We're not just matter. We're not just neurons. And the living soul will survive death, and there is a living, permanent life, and there is a living, permanent death. Judgment day is coming, and we must make a decision about which destiny we are pursuing, heaven or hell. You see, all of these are based on our the revelation of God's Word to us. We did not invent these things. We did not think them up. As a matter of fact, most of them are counterintuitive. Most of them defy human reason. God's Word is the source of all truth, not just biblical truth, but of all truth. God's Word is the ultimate self-revelation, and it encompasses all truth in the globe. So when we talk about God's Word, though, we must be reminded that Jesus Christ, His Son, and from eternity, His Son, before He was incarnate, is the embodiment of that Word. He is the living Word. The Holy Spirit communicates that Word, and the Scripture that we have before us is the record of God's revelation. It is the record of His truth that is given to us. Now, when I say record, it doesn't make it any less than the Word of God. It is living. It is sharp. It is incisive. It cuts all the way through the marrow of the bone the Bible is God's revelation from which we draw these truths and the Bible is a summary of all of these truths and not just these but the truth in the world here's the point today and next week we're going to talk about God's word in our apology if it is not authentic if it is not reliable then all of these things that I have said this morning all of our beliefs are without foundation foundation So it is important for us to come to grips with what God's Word is. And when people attack it, such as Voltaire did, and many do today, we must have a reasoned defense. You see, what they will say is the Bible is not authentic. And what I mean by that is they will say, no, it's not really God's Word. It's not divinely inspired, either because God doesn't exist on the one hand, or as Voltaire would suggest, God exists, but he did not specifically reveal himself in written form. They would say, it's merely a human document written by fallible humans prone to error. It's no more inspired than many other great works like Shakespeare are inspired. And its message is no more divine than any other religious book by any other religion. And they would, they would go further to say, you see, you don't even have the original text. You have only copies. And those copies are filled with many many what we call variants they would call them errors they would say it's not authentic and that's what we're dealing with today next week we're going to talk about the reliability of Scripture they would say that it contains factual errors and inconsistencies that its authors are undependable either because perhaps they were insincere and it was some great plot to form a religion that they could head up, or they they were deluded, they had hallucinations, or they had misguided dreams, or maybe even following the religious leaders, then they actually were deceived by them, and of course they would then indict Jesus Christ and say that he was a great deceiver. We'll talk about those things next week. What I want to talk about today is the authenticity of God's Word. And our response, I think, would be something like this. The Bible is authentic. What do we mean by that? When, when we say it's God's word, it came from God. It is inspired by God. And of course, you would guess which text we would look at for the basis for that. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17. All scripture, all of God's words, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And of course, when when Paul was speaking to Timothy here, he was speaking mainly about the Old Testament that had come before, but he was also then speaking of the word that was being recorded at that time by the apostles. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is God's inspired word. It is His breathed word. It's not just a human document. Yes, it has been written by men throughout history, about 40 authors, but it has been communicated by God's Spirit. And of course, Peter tells us this in his second letter in the first chapter in verses 20 and 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will but by men moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So it came from God. It is inspired by God. It's communicated by his Holy Spirit, and it came to men who have written it down. It is, therefore, authentically God's word. The argument I would put to you is something like this. There are two corollaries that come from that. If it is his inspired word, if the Old Testament and the New Testament The 66 books which we have in the canon are God's inspired word. Then, therefore, it is infallible and it is indestructible. It is infallible. That means that it is true in every respect, upside down and inside out, with what God intends it to accomplish. Does it have science in it? Does it have history in it? Does it have poetry in it? Yes, but it's not essentially a science book. It's not essentially a great work of literature or poetry, although it is, but that's not the essence of it. It's not essentially a history book. It is far more than that. It accomplishes what God intends it to, and in that respect, it is infallible. Isaiah tells us, So my word by which, which goes forth from my mouth, it will not return to me Empty. It will not come back void. It will accomplish what I have said it will accomplish. It will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So God's inspired word that has come through his spirit to men written down for us that we read today is authentic in this respect. It is also infallible and it is indestructible. It will never pass away despite what Voltaire said. In our confessional statement in the Baptist Faith and Message, it's put this way, it is the record of God's revelation of Himself to humans. Now what is the ultimate, full, living revelation of God? It is His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the Word, the living Word. And He communicated the words that are recorded to us, many of them in the New Testament. And you put all of these revelations that have come from God through the prophets and the apostles, and they are the record of God's revelation to us. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It is therefore infallibly true. It is truth without any mixture of error, and it is accurate concerning the things that God intends it to address. Excuse me. So what are some considerations that we should look at before we go any further? How do you prove divine inspiration? Well, just as we cannot prove that God exists by going into the laboratory and looking at the crucible and the Bunsen burner. You cannot prove chemically that God exists. You cannot prove scientifically that God exists. You cannot prove inspiration of scripture in that way. The best thing I think that we can do is we can look for markers. Very much like when you hold a $10 or $20 bill, and you hold it up to the light, and you will see watermarks that testify to its authenticity. It's not counterfeit. In the same way, there are some markers in God's Word and in the copies that we have. It's kind of a a cumulative case of markers that help us to know that it's authentic. And today, we're going to be focusing on the New Testament. These are the four points of the cumulative case of markers for authenticity I would propose to you. First of all, there's a certainty of its authorship. Secondly, the texts that we have are very, very early texts that bear witness to their authenticity. Secondly, we have to look at the nature of the copies that we have, the manuscripts that we have, and we need to examine those, and I will talk about three things regarding the nature. And then finally, the unique nature of the message and the content of scripture so the first of those the certainty of authorship you know there are those that say that some of the uh, books of the new testament were not written by the authors that the book claims that they were written by and so i'm going to talk about the core first and then i'm going to talk about those others but please understand me i believe that all how many books in the new testament 27 books All of them are divinely inspired. All of them are infallibly true. But even if you were to begin with the core, those that we know the authorship, everything everything that, that God really wants us to know essentially about the gospel is contained in them. Those, The core that we know the authorship of, the gospels, Acts, and the Pauline epistles, most of them. There's a uniform acceptance by all of the early church and really through the centuries that the four authors of the Gospels wrote those. There's internal evidence from the Gospels. I don't have time to go into that internal evidence, but it is there that confirms the authorship of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And no credible scholar today disputes this fact. And all of them... All four of them were eyewitnesses to the things that they wrote about in one way or another. Matthew and John walked with Jesus. Mark was Peter's secretary, and he heard firsthand from Peter about having walked with the Lord. And Luke served with Paul for many years. And he heard Paul's account, much of which was derived from the apostles. So the Gospels, their authorship is authentic, and it is is dependent upon eyewitness accounts. The book of Acts. The book of Acts, we know, is the second part of Luke's account, and so if we accept Luke's writing of the gospel as authentic, we should do so there, and nobody disputes his authorship. And the Pauline authorship, 13 epistles, Paul identifies himself as the author in each one of those. He was a contemporary who lived at the time of Christ. Who knows, he may have even witnessed some of the events around Resurrection Day. We don't know that for sure, but he did talk to the apostles about them. The internal evidence of his writings makes it clear that he is the author. And William Paley, in the 18th century, wrote his horae I, where he examined the evidences for Pauline uh, authorship, and it is very clear that he wrote them. The only three that are disputed are what we call the pastoral epistles. First and second, Timothy and tw- Titus. The other 10, no question about authorship. <clears throat> so what about those disputed authors? Well, we're looking at 15 books, that sound, or uh, 12 books. That sounds like an awful lot, 12 out of the 27. Hebrews, no one knows the author, and if they tell you they do know who the author is, I would suspect that they uh, don't have the inside knowledge that they think they do. Some scholars challenge, then, of course, the pastoral epistles, James, Jude, the Johannine literature outside the gospel, that is, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation, and then also the Petrine letters, the two letters. And once again, I believe those are inspired, they're canonical, but critics would say, well, we question their authorship. So let's take a look for a moment at the core. The core gives us clearly, that is, the Gospels and Acts and those ten Pauline epistles give us everything that we need to know about Christ's life and his message, his ministry, his resurrection and glorification, and the essential doctrines and the practices and the history of the early church. And the core comprises over 80% of the New Testament canon. When you look at the disputed uh, authors... 19% 19% of the canon, and 11% of that is found in, in uh, Hebrews and Revelation. But even then, all of the early fathers affirmed almost the, the, the authorship of almost all of those, and there is very little dispute about them. Despite the disputed authorship of those 12 books, church history and the consensus of the church say they're divinely inspired and everything in in them fits with the doctrine and practices that we find in the core. You see, they're also easily distinguished from other apocryphal works, which clearly are inferior, like the Gospels of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Judas and Peter, the secret Gospel of Mark. These other 12 books have clear credibility and internal evidence that they're genuine. Their authorship is superior. Their content is not like those apocryphal works. So I would suggest that all 27 books are authentic. But even if you look only at the core, there's no question that the basic message of the gospel and the doctrine and the practice of the early church that we follow today is authentic. Secondly, we have the early dating of the text. You see, we've said this before. There are those who would say that the Bible is filled with myths, that it's filled with stories and legends that are accretions that have been uh, laid on top of the true story. You know this, we've said it before, it takes about three generations, late second or third generation, about 75 to 100 years for those kinds of legends and myths to take hold. And liberal scholars would say that most of the New Testament was written late in the first century or maybe even in the second century, and so there are many myths that have been built into it. So, you see, here, for the authenticity of the New Testament, it is very important for us to understand the dating. How early were the dates? Well, the resurrection occurred somewhere around 30. The Pauline epistles, the earliest literature in the New Testament, which predate the Gospels, come from the early 50s to the early 60s, only about 30 years after the resurrection. And Paul, in his resurrection account, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, he is deriving his information from the apostles whom he met somewhere around four years after the resurrection, listening to the testimony of eyewitnesses. Also, too, the Pauline epistles contain early creeds and liturgies when you examine the literary devices in them of the early church. Obviously written very early within one generation of the resurrection. Acts, we would say the same thing because if Luke wrote both Luke and Acts pretty closely together and even if Acts follows Luke, we know that it was sometime before 62 to 64 A.D., because it does not record Paul's death, which occurred about that time. Acts is very early. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We take a look at Luke. Luke then was probably written about the same time as Acts. It's a two-part work with Acts, probably before Acts, maybe in the late 50s. And it drew material from an earlier gospel, that is, Mark. So you put Luke and Mark together in about the same time frame, and Matthew also drew from much of the Markan tradition. So we can't date the synoptic Gospels exactly, but maybe in the late 50s, early 60s, the latest possible date would be the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Well, that puts it only 40 years after the resurrection, the beginning of the second generation. The Gospel of John, the consensus is that it was between somewhere probably about 80 to his death, about 100. But he relied on material that had been composed immediately after the resurrection and up to the beginning of the war between the Jews and the Romans. And so much of his material comes in the late first, early second generation. The summary then about the dating for the authenticity of Scripture would be this. Most of the core that we talked about was written before 70 A.D. during the first and second generations based on eyewitness accounts of people who saw Jesus raised from the dead who would have prevented the sustaining of legends and myths. There's a third marker, and that is the nature of the copies. I want to take a look at three things very quickly. The extent of the copies... And then the gap from the original, the autograph, to the copies, the time, and then the accuracy. Need to remind us, and the critics will say this, we do not have any of the autographs. What do we mean by that? We do not have any of the original writings. They have crumbled into dust in the Middle Eastern sun. But we do have copies. And here, the extent of the manuscripts is very important. You see, the more manuscripts that someone has of an ancient document, And the more manuscripts they can compare with each other, with the variant readings, the closer they can come back to reconstructing the original. So do we have many manuscripts? There is more manuscript evidence of the New Testament than any other ancient work. There are 5,000, over 5,000, almost 6,000 Greek manuscripts, 58-56, in existence today. And the number continues to increase as they find more which constitute 2.6 million pages. That does not include the over 18,000 copies of non-Greek New Testament manuscripts in such languages as Syriac, Coptic, Arabic, and Latin. Compare this with other ancient works. The ancient work that we have the most copies of apart from Scripture is Homer's Iliad. Now think of this, 24,000 New Testament manuscripts, they have recently, in the past few years, discovered as many as 1,800 copies of Homer's Iliad. That is all. That's only a little more than 7% of the New Testament manuscripts. Plato's works, 238 copies. Aristotle, 49 copies. Caesar's Gallic Wars, 251 co- copies. The paucity of ancient manuscripts outside the witness of the New Testament is very meager. By comparison, if you take most of these authors from ancient history and stack up their works so for example take Aristotle his stack would be about four feet high if you were to take those manuscripts that we have the 24,000 Greek and other language manuscripts and stack them on top of each other it would be one mile high not just four feet but over 5,000 feet tall So you see, there are plenty of manuscripts from which we can reconstruct the original text. The gap between the original and the copies, that's very important. Because the longer the gap, the greater chance there is that there are going to be mistakes in the copying. The earliest fragment that we have of the New Testament is from the Gospel of John, about 25 to 30 years after its composition. Whole books of the New Testament began to be compiled about 100 years later, and the whole canon of the New Testament was compiled into into canonical books 250 years later. So think of that, that number, 250 years. We've got all of the New Testament collected together in 250 years. Compare it to Homer's Iliad. Homer's Iliad was written, we don't know exactly when, somewhere between the 8th and 10th century B.C., The first full copy of Homer's Iliad that we have is not until then the 10th century AD, 16 to 1800 years later. Sophocles' plays, Herodotus and Thucydides' histories, and Aristotle, all of those, there's a 14th century gap. Caesar's Gallic Wars, there is a 9th century gap. Tacitus' Roman history, a 10th century gap. We're talking in terms of about 10 to 14th century gap between the original and the copies of these ancient manuscripts, and we have a complete copy of the New Testament within 250 years after the autographs. What about the accuracy of the the manuscripts? There are over 200,000 textual variants in just the Greek manuscripts alone, those Almost 5,300 manuscripts. Now think about that. What that means is critics will look at those and say, there are 200,000 errors. Look at that. Well, that's a little misleading. The number is large because of the way they count errors, or not errors, variants. If you have one spelling variation in this copy and it's repeated in 2,000 of the 5,400, then it counts as 2,000 variants. So you see the number 200,000 is very misleading. In fact, only about 1 in 60 of these variants is of any significance at all for an accuracy of about 98%. Philip Schaff, a church historian in the 19th century, analyzed the data, and he says that there are only 400 variants in all of these manuscripts. There are only about 400 variants that have any significance in the passage, and not a single one of them Not a single one of those 400 changes the doctrinal message in the New Testament. Bruce Metzger, that great textual critical scholar from Princeton, analyzed the text of three documents, ancient documents. The New Testament, Homer's Iliad, and the Hindu uh, Mahabharata. And this is what he observed. There are 20,000 lines in the New Testament, only 40 of them. Are affected by the variants for an accuracy of 99 and a half percent. Homer's Iliad on the other hand 15,600 lines is accurate to 95 percent about four and a half percent less and then when it comes to the Hindu document 250,000 lines there are 26,000 lines that are affected by the variants for only a 90 percent accuracy. I would say the summary then when we look at the manuscript evidence for authenticity, the third marker is this. The New Testament manuscripts are more abundant than any other ancient manuscript. They are closer to the autographs than any other ancient manuscript and they are more consistent and more accurate so that we can reconstruct with great accuracy and precision what the ancient text says. The authorship is certain. The text is very early. The copies are numerous, the gap is short, and the accuracy is precise. We come to the last point. What about the uniqueness of Scripture? Well, look at the variety and the continuity of Scripture. Look at its circulation. Look at how it has survived and its influence. And look at the unusual message of the New Testament. The variety and continuity. It was written over 1,500 years by over 40 authors from every walk in life, shepherd and king, prophet, farmer, priest, and fisherman from all walks of life. It outlasted five empires and innumerable dynasties. It was written in every kind of setting on the three continents that were known at that time, Africa, Asia, and Europe, written in three different languages, Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek, with many styles of writing, poetry, narrative, prophecy, history, law, apocalyptic imagery. And yet with all of that variety, there is a consistent message that runs from Genesis to Revelation. And that consistent message is what? God loves you, we are sinners, and God is redeeming the sinner for salvation and eternal life. God is not only redeeming the sinner for eternal life, but he is redeeming all of his creation that has fallen. The theme of redemption runs from Genesis all the way consistently through Revelation. This morning, we, ter- we heard about Hosea and Gomer and the marriage and what God was saying to Hosea. Now, what that, what that was about was he wished to redeem Israel, and he was using that marriage as an example of his redemptive covenant love that pursues us and wants to draw us back. There's a lot of variety, but there is continuity. Look at the circulation. It's impossible to count how many Bibles have been published. You know that. But the estimates are somewhere between 5 and 6 billion. Compare that with other works. Agatha Christie, that publisher of 78 crime novels, probably 2 billion in circulation. The Quran written by, uh, or uh, read and studied by, by all in the Islamic faith. 800 million copies. Mao Zedong's writings, his little red book, which circulated through China for many years and continues to be read. 800 million copies. Now let's bring it right down to today for the young people. J.K. Rowling and her seven Harry Potter books, 500 million The Book of Mormon, 190 million, none of these begins to compare at all with almost 6 billion Bibles in circulation. The global coverage is complete, almost, not quite. It has been translated into 3,350 languages. The Quran, 173. Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the second most popular work in the English language, translated into 200 languages. Harry Potter into 70 languages. The Bible has been translated into over 3,000. Look at the circulation. Look at its survival and its influence. In the Old Testament king, Jehoiakim tried to destroy the word that was given to Jeremiah and to the people of Israel, and he did not succeed in Jeremiah 36. In the intertestamental period, the Syrian king, Antiochus Epiphanes, came into Palestine, and he tried to destroy the Jewish faith and to eradicate the scripture and he was unsuccessful because the Maccabees revolted and not only gained their independence but restored the reading of scripture. In the late 3rd century, at the beginning of the 4th century, the emperor Diocletian tried to destroy the word of God he punished those who had it and he put many to death and he destroyed thousands of copies. And since then, even the medieval church punished those who wrote the Bible in the vernacular, the popular language, and executed many of them. Atheistic regimes such as the Soviet Union and communist China have tried to suppress the word of God. Islamic states today forbid any non-Muslim religious literature. You see, men throughout history have tried to destroy it and suppress the word of God. But the answer to Voltaire is simply this. Jesus said himself, heaven and earth Will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Look at the influence. Look at the influence of the Word of God. More than any other work ever written, it has influenced key aspects of almost every culture around the globe, from religion to ethics, from law to sociology, literature to science, philosophy to politics. I defy you to find any country where the influence of the Scripture and especially the Gospel has not had an influence. And then finally, friends, look at the unusual message. You know, the message of Scripture is counterintuitive. It is not according to human reason. If you were to write a plan for the salvation of humankind, the redemption of creation, we could not have invented this. You know, Jesus, in His own day, was met as a what? A revolutionary. He was a troublemaker because he was speaking the word of God. He said, you have heard it said, and he spoke to their traditions, and even as they interpreted scripture, but I say unto you. He was opposed by empty traditions, which he defied in terms of the religious leadership of the Sadducees and the Pharisees because of God's message. He taught self-denial and humility instead of materialism and power he taught forgiveness instead of vengeance and retribution and he taught that women should be respected children should be loved and cherished and not abandoned he had a high view of slaves he said the kingdom of God is not of this world his message was radical it was revolutionary we would not have invented that message it's radically different not only from every other religious message it's not just an inspired book Like an inspired piece of literature, it is God-breathed, given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's authentic. And the message of it is different from any other religious message. There is no other religion, no other faith group on the face of this globe that has a message anything like it. It defies human reason. No human would invent it. God is uniquely supernatural, just as the Jews and the Muslims say. But the message of the gospel, and really it goes through the Old Testament, is he is the Father who loves us. He is the Son who sacrificed himself for us, and he is the Holy Spirit that conveys to us the gift of salvation. He is triune, three persons and one substance. It is a unique message. We said this about three weeks ago. Jesus is unique. He's fully God and fully man. He came to die and make a sacrifice for your sin and mine. He is the only way. He is the only truth. And through him and only him can we be saved. He is the only resurrected and glorified Lord. He is the only one that is at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, who even now makes intercession for us. Salvation. We will talk about this the Sunday after Easter in the last message. Salvation in the word of God is unique. We're not saved by what we do. We're saved by God's grace. We receive it through faith, but even that faith is empowered and given to us by God. The Holy Spirit inhabits those who follow Him, who submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we can have a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. This is a unique message unlike any other faith. And eternal life You look at every other major religious faith group around the globe today, and they cannot guarantee the certainty of eternal life. Many of them dispute life after this life. And those that say there is eternal life cannot give you assurance of it, but the Scripture gives us the assurance from the Word of God. I have written these things for you, John says, so that we may know and have certainty. And the certainty is that we may have eternal life if we trust in Jesus Christ and obey him. The word of God, I believe, is authentic. And it authenticates all of those other 12 things that we have said in the past few weeks. And next week, we will look at its reliability and point to the salvation which is unique in the glorified Lord on Easter Sunday morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have given your word, not just a pledge, but you have literally given your word, that you have revealed yourself in the person of your son, Jesus Christ, that your Holy Spirit has communicated that message in the text that we read, and we can be confident that it is authentic, that when we read it and we hear the assurance of salvation, this morning, when someone is listening to this message or whenever they do, if they are convicted by your Holy Spirit that your word is true, that that person is separated from you, Father, because of their sin. They cannot enter eternally into your presence with a sin in their life, and they want to accept the gift of eternal salvation. We thank you that you offer this gift this morning that if they will believe in your son Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord and Savior, that you will send your Holy Spirit to dwell in that person and you give them eternal life as part of the priesthood of believers and that you have a place prepared for them in your heavenly home. And we thank you that all of this is sealed by your Holy Spirit and confirmed by your authentic word, the scripture that you have given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is God's pleasure with you this morning? Is God calling you to make some kind of commitment? Perhaps it is some kind of commitment in your life service. Maybe it is that God's calling you to come and join and be a part of the uh, fellowship of believers here that we call Gamble Street Baptist Church. Maybe it's the same with you online. Or perhaps you have come to the point in your life today for the first time when Jesus Christ is more than just a word and He has become real to you, and you want to make Him Savior and Lord by repenting of your sin and accepting the gift of salvation. What is God's pleasure with you this morning as we extend the invitation?
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817 926 1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals, to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.